Hi everybody and welcome to episode 22 of the Vassals of Kingsgrave Agatha Christie reread. My name is Bina007 and I will be your host for today's mini-pod which will cover 1937's Hercule Poirot mystery Dumb Witness, also known as Poirot Loses a Client. The reason for this being a mini-pod is that I think it's universally accepted as one of Agatha Christie's lesser Hercule Poirot novels. We'll get into one of the reasons why in the spoiler-filled aftershow when I'll discuss what I feel is a not entirely satisfactory resolution to this murder. Um, Also because it's one of her longer novels and it's quite clumsily written in some respects, although not in others. So it's not an unmitigated triumph in the way that some of her more famous 1930s novels are. But who is the dumb witness of the novel title? It is, in fact, Agatha Christie and her love of dogs that comes to the fore in this novel. It's actually not the first novel that she's dedicated to her beloved dog, Peter. Um, But this one very much is the one where dogs take centre stage. So the, the dedication in this book reads, To dear Peter, most faithful of friends and dearest of companions, a dog in a thousand. Oh, isn't that gorgeous? She'd actually also dedicated or half dedicated her book, The Mystery of the Blue Train, to her dog as well, which was written, as you will maybe remember from this podcast, in the depths or during the depths of her despair in her divorce from her husband. So, you know, she obviously has a great fondness for dogs. And this comes through in this novel. The dumb witness of the title is a little terrier dog called Bob, (laughs) who is intimately involved in the proceedings. And indeed, for some of the novel, it is told from his perspective. I'm sure many of us who are dog lovers often think of what a dog must be thinking and humanise them and imagine them having thoughts on proceedings. And Agatha Christie does that here. Some people find it so awkward. I actually rather love love it and think it's very true to form but um yes that is not one of the reasons this is a mini pod but for many many readers it would be because they find it excruciating so what is the simple plot of this novel and as always this will be spoiler free until the end credits music Hercule Poirot receives a letter um, and it's from a lady called Emily Arundel And you can tell that she's in distress. She thinks something nefarious has been occurring. She wants Hercule Poirot to investigate, but she wants him to do so with the utmost discretion. Unfortunately, the letter only arrives with Hercule Poirot many months after it um, was written. So there's been a delay, a mystery in the delay of its posting. And when he actually tracks down the person who wrote it, it turns out that she has recently died. And what is even more mysterious, when she dies, rather than leaving her surprisingly considerable fortune to her three um, nieces and nephew, or her two nieces and a nephew, she's actually left it to her lady's companion, uh, Minnie Lawson. And this has caused great surprise in the village of Market Basing. No one really seems to think that the person who's inherited the money did so because they were conniving or you know, inveil their way into Emily Arundel's good books. Um, Rather, they just seem to think it's rather a weird episode. And Hercule Poirot decides that even though he doesn't really know if a murder has taken place, that he is going to investigate the, 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 the mystery of the death of Emily Arundel and why she gave her money to a surprising person. 
this is the last investigation he will carry out with Captain Hastings until the very last Hercule Poirot novel, Curtain, that was probably written around this time. And I have to say, it comes as a great relief. Not because I don't particularly like Hastings, although I do think we don't see the best of Hercule Poirot when Hastings is around, because he can be rather patronising. And there is some of that in this novel, although less maybe than previously. I prefer Poirot in novels like Cards on the Table, where he is with people that he considers his peers in investigation. We see a softer, kinder side of Poirot. But this is the last Hastings novel, and it's very awkward because, as we know, Agatha Christie has always had the sort of the guise of making these the memoirs of Captain Hastings, recollecting what happened in the way of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. But actually, the first kind of third of this novel is really wanting to be a third person narrative or a narrative from the perspective of Emily Arundel judging her family members and us getting to know the reasons why she changed her will. And Hastings is then introduced a third of the way through the novel and says, this is, I think, um, you know, to the best of my ability, the, the sort of the reconstruction of those events. And it's just so clumsy. And actually, I much preferred the writing style in that part of the novel. It was more acerbic, more biting. I think Emily Arundel's a really interesting character. And it just felt very forced to then do this sort of like the switcheroo a third of the way through. And that's also one of the reasons I find this novel quite difficult, because it has a very weird shift in style. And also, not for me, but for some people reading it, they feel it has redundancy, that there's repetition, that it takes too long to get out of the station. And that why didn't we just start when the letter finds itself with Poirot and Hastings and they go to the village to start investigating. This is, in the edition that I have, a novel that's about 320 pages long. Some of them, Peril at End House, are as short as 240 pages. So it's a considerably longer novel and it's not entirely clear that it needs to be. Anyway, let's get into some of the characters and some of the parts of the Christie verse. So... As we get through these novels, we start to see Agatha Christie incredibly confident, referring back to herself, and this is no exception. In chapter 11 of the book, when Poirot is, you know, trying to create a familiarity with the mistrips and the mysteries of the, the East, um, he's kind of bigging up his own travels in that, re- that arena. And Hastings writes rather pithily, Poirot's travellings in the east, as far as I knew, consisted of one journey to Syria extended to Iraq, and which occupied perhaps a few weeks. And actually what he's referring to there is The Murder in Mesopotamia, another mini-pod that we covered, a book from 1936, after which Poirot returned on the Orient Express and solved that famous murder. So a nice little wink at two recent mysteries there from Agatha Christie. In chapter 18, however, Agatha Christie reveals the the murderers of four different novels. And her I'm just amazed that her publishers allowed her to get away with that. So she reveals the solution to Death in the Clouds from 1935, The Mysterious Affair at Styles from 1920, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd from 1926, and The Mystery of the Blue Tech Crane from 1928. So be warned, if you if you read this novel and haven't read those, you are going to get the names of the murderers. Um, there's also, apart from the Christieverse, some nice little nods to what's happening in the world at the time. So, as I said, published in 1937, we have a character with children, just have a throwaway reference to Mickey Mouse. 
kind of amazing to think that that Disney character is nearly 100 years old now, invented in 1928. So enough part of the common parlance to get a reference in a pop culture novel. Um, There's also a reference to a young boy having his first ride on the London Underground on the Tube, which is quite fun. There's also a much darker reference, although quite flippantly made to the Armenian genocide of 1915-17. So interesting to see that as a sort of contemporary reference to happenings in the Near East. But also, we'll get into it later, but one of the less palatable parts of this novel. So let's get into the characters, and that will also take us a little bit into the plot. Obviously, we start with Hercule Poirot, our famous Belgian detective. And in this novel, we get a character aspect to him that we haven't maybe seen as much or as frequently. In in novels, he often um, tells a lie or poses as someone to try and affect a scene, um, often lying actually to murderers to make them think he has evidence to force a confession. But in this book, it feels like he is lying constantly as he interviews various witnesses and gives various fake names and reasons for asking them questions, including being a novelist. (laughs) He seems to, for a very moral man who in many of these novels wrestles with his conscience, he, he seems very comfortable with lying. And as he says to Hastings, Hastings says to him, more lies, I suppose. And Poirot says, you really, you are really very offensive sometimes, Hastings. Anybody would think I enjoy telling lies. Hastings says, I rather think you do. In fact, I'm sure of it. And then Poirot responds, it is true that I sometimes compliment myself upon my ingenuity. Poirot confessed. And I think it's really funny that even in lying, he takes a pride in his intelligence. So it's a lovely little exchange. Uh, we obviously have Captain Hastings, but that's the investigative team. We don't have a uh, an inspector brought into this one. In terms of the characters and the situation in Market Basing, the, the murder victim, as we'll come to discover, is Emily Arundel, who has amassed a great fortune, uh, basically by just living very thriftily, I feel, and not frippering away her inheritance. Um, but it's interesting because she's seen as a rather old-fashioned lady, and it's not clear that those old-fashioned virtues are to be admired or not admired. I think Christie's just making a sociological comment about how time has changed, particularly contrasting Emily with her niece. So Christie feels at one point it necessary to explain that, quote, in Miss Arundel's day, women took second place. Men were the important members of society. And when she's assigning bedrooms, Miss Arundel, to her nieces and nephew. Um, she gives the nephew the best room. And I think it's really fascinating that Agatha Christie might not have felt the need to comment on this in her early 1920s novels. She probably would have just tacitly agreed with it. But now as she gets older, as society moves forward, she does start seeing those contrasts between those people raised in the Victorian era in the 1800s and the modern women and men of contemporary society. But, but many times people are in praise of Miss Arundel. Uh, they call her, quote, one of the old school. Not many like her nowadays. Um, there's a really funny point, however, when Emily Arundel says, quote, a man could not possibly want to live on his wife's money. And I thought, wow, touche, because at this point, Agatha Christie's married to Max Mallowan. Um, she's 47 years old and she's very much supporting her husband. She's sponsoring his archaeological digs. She's older than him and commercially incredibly successful. So I do think it's funny that Agatha Christie, as she becomes more successful and more of a conventional male role by society at that time, that 
she has a more objective view on relations between the sexes, which is really funny. The other way in which Agatha Christie criticises people of Emily Arundel's generation is their attitude towards medicine and weakness of character in general. This is another quotation that we get about her. She felt wakeful lying on her big four-poster bed. Nowadays, she found it increasingly difficult to sleep. But she scorned Dr Granger's tentative suggestion of a sleeping draught. Sleeping drafts were for weaklings, for people who couldn't bear a finger ache or a little toothache or the tedium of a sleepless night, which is very much the attitude of a certain generation. It's interesting, again, that Agatha Christie notes it, being resistant to modern medicine and modern techniques, but also, I think, speaks to what I said earlier about the technique in this novel not being satisfactory, because if Hastings is reconstructing the events that led up to Emily Arundel's death, how could he possibly know how she felt lying awake at night and that she didn't approve of people taking sleeping drafts? So, as I said, I think that would have been much better just told as a straightforward third-person narrative. We then get Bob the dog, <laughs> Emily Arundel's beloved little terrier. And he is so vividly drawn. I, I do not understand why people get angry about Bob the dog. And there's a lovely little passage. Bob and Spot the butcher's dog circle slowly round each other, hackles raised, growling gently. Spot was a stout dog of nondescript breed. He knew that he must not fight with customers' dogs, but he permitted himself to tell them, by subtle indication, just exactly what mincemeat he would make of them were he free to do so. Bob, a dog of spirit, replied in kind. I mean, isn't that delightful? I think it's delightful. If you don't think it's delightful, uh, maybe you shouldn't read the book because there is a fair amount of Bob narrative in there. Um, So Emily Arundel, an old woman of a certain age, um, actually in pretty decent health, but getting older. She has a series of uh, companions who sort of do basic errands for her. We've met this type of woman before because we've met it in the character in cards on the table, uh, the young girl who is a lady's companion. And we've also seen that character in The Mystery of the Blue Train, when a lady's companion also inherits a tidy sum and is then allowed to travel in great luxury to the south of France. So this is a character that Agatha Christie does explore as one of the more commonly accepted ways of women of a certain class, but no real education or skill set to earn a living. And it's one of the more critical takes on it. There's a lot of um, commentary in the book about how Agatha Christie feels through the voice of some of the nurses that these women actually aren't very good at what they do and get in the way because they don't have training and you'd be far better off having a proper nurse or someone with medical training. So it's interesting that Agatha Christie doesn't really take the side of these women who don't have alternatives. She, She finds them a little bit silly. Um, And that's certainly the impression we get of Miss Minnie Lawson. There's a very interesting passage in which Hercule Poirot describes how Miss Lawson has been described to him from various witnesses. So he says as follows. Already we know certain aspects of these people. Take Miss Lawson. From the Mrs. Tripp, we learn she was devoted, unselfish, unworldly and altogether a beautiful character. From Miss Peabody, we learn that she was credulous, stupid, without the nerve or the brains to attempt anything criminal. From Dr. Granger, we learn that she was downtrodden, that her position was precarious, and that she was a poor, frightened, fluttering hen. From our waiter, we learned that Miss Lawson was a person, 
and from Ellen that Bob the dog despised her, all of which are aspects of truth. But I think it, it very much sums up the Miss Lawson character that we're taught to sort of a little bit dismiss her as a silly old woman who's come into a great fortune. Um, I think we're meant to think that the suspicion for the death of Emily Arundel doesn't fall upon her because actually she didn't know she was going to inherit. So less of a motive. We're meant to look at the members of the family who were staying with Miss Arundel over the Easter holiday and who all have been told uh, many times that when she dies, the fortune will be equally split amongst her relatives. The first of these is the nephew, Charles Arundel. Um, and we hear almost from the start from everyone that he is literally not to be trusted. It's one of the first things we're told about him from the view of Mrs. Arundel. Um, from Agatha, we're told that he's a tall and good looking man with his slightly mocking manner. He desperately needs money and jokingly tells his aunt that she will be bumped off for it. Um, he makes a lot of jokes about killing for money and needing money and being a criminal and being lazy and just wanting things to come easy. But he's charming. I mean, Captain Hastings says he finds him very charming. So he's a little bit in the manner of, in some of the early, the very early books, I talked about Agatha Christie having this brother who was rather feckless, very charming, very good looking, but made a bit of a hash of his life and was always a burden to the family. And I feel that Charles Arundel is definitely in that manner. So this is a passage where Charles is saying how he might have got around um, overturning the will. And he, he speaks of crime so casually. He says, I'd thought of a spot of forgery myself. That's rather my line. I got sent down from Oxford because of a little misunderstanding about a cheque. That was childishly simple, though, merely a question of adding a nord. Then there was another little fracas with Aunt Emily in the local bank. Foolish on my part, of course. I ought to have realised the old lady was sharp as needles. However, all these incidents have been very small fry. Fivers and tenors, that class. A deathbed will would be admittedly risky. One would have to get hold of the stiff and starched Ellen. And is suborned the word? Anyway, induce her to say that she had witnessed it. It would take some doing, I fear. I might even marry her and then she wouldn't be able to give evidence against me afterwards. So Charles is obviously, you know, spinning this tale of how he might fabricate a will in his favour, but he is definitely not to be trusted. We know he's a petty thief. He's desperate for money and he, he makes his claim very openly. So he's one suspect. The other suspect is Charles's sister, Teresa Arundel, who stands in great contrast to her aunt. She's a very bright young thing, maybe a little gone to seed, actually, because we're now in 1937, not 1927. But decidedly modern, decidedly fond of luxury, very, very fashionable, wears all the best clothes in all the best ways. This is the passage written about her from her aunt's perspective. Teresa, for instance, she had no control over Teresa since the latter had come into her own money at the age of 21. Since then, the girl had achieved a certain notoriety. Her picture was often in the papers. She belonged to a young, bright, go-ahead set in London, a set that had freak parties and occasionally ended up in the police courts. What on earth is a freak party? What does Agatha Christie mean by a freak party? I really, really want to know. Another sentence is, Teresa's clothes were expensive, slightly bizarre, and she herself had an exquisite figure. So again, a very attractive character. I think Teresa Arundel is absolutely one of the most fun characters in the book. And one of the reasons why the book is not a failure, despite the slightly weird ending and the slightly weird technique of having it all narrated by Hastings. I think she's really one, yet again, one of Agatha Christie's superb female characters. 
Um, this is another description of her. You can tell I love this character. Teresa Arundel looked about 28 or 9. She was tall and very slender, and she looked rather like an exaggerated drawing in black and white. Her hair was jet black, her face heavily made up, dead pale. Her eyebrows freakishly plucked, gave her an air of mocking irony. Her lips were the only spot of colour, a brilliant gash of scarlet in a white face. She also conveyed the impression, how I do not quite know, for her manner was almost wearily indifferent, of being at least twice as much alive as most people. There hung about her the restrained energy of a whiplash. Now that's a marvellous description, the restrained energy of a whiplash. What glorious writing, but we're meant to believe that Captain Hastings came up with this. Please, would never happen. What would be her motive? The same as Charles. She wants money. And again, like Charles, she's just incredibly open about her greed. This is how she describes um, the fact that what she inherited from her father is not enough and why she needs Emily Arundel's inheritance. My father left us £30,000 each. The interest on that, safely invested, amounts to about 1200 a year. Income tax takes another wedge of it. A nice little income on which one can man manage very prettily. But I... Her voice changed, her slim body straightened, her head back went back, all that wonderful aliveness I'd sensed in her came to the fore. But I want something better than that out of life. I want the best, the best food, the best clothes, something with line to it, beauty, not just suitable covering in the prevailing fashion. I want to live and enjoy, to go to the Mediterranean and lie in the warm summer sea, to sit round a table and play with exciting wads of money, to give parties, wild, absurd, extravagant parties. I want everything that's going in this rotten world and I don't want it someday. I want it now. I mean, I think that's a marvellous bit of character description. I think it's a marvellously attractive character. She reminds me of Veruca Salt in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, grown up. I want everything and I want it now. But weirdly, Teresa Arundel is engaged to a chap called Dr. Rex Donaldson. He comes across as incredibly boring, incredibly stiff. He goes to bed early. He also needs money, but weirdly for a totally different reason, which is that he's an incredibly bright, smart young man. He's currently a GP, so a primary care doctor. But if he had the money to set himself up, he'd be able to specialise and become quite a famous consultant. So... He's ambitious, his profession means a lot to him and he needs money to set himself up, but it really is opposites attract between him and Theresa Arundel. But, you know, there you go, more power to them. So those are the first two cousins and the third cousin is Mrs. Bella Tanios, Arabella Tanios. Um, and this is what Miss Arundel says of her. With a sigh, her thoughts passed on to Bella there was no fault to find with Bella. She was a good woman, a devoted wife and mother, quite exemplary in behaviour and extremely dull. But even Bella could not be regarded with complete approval, for Bella had married a foreigner, and not only a foreigner, but a Greek. In Miss Arundel's prejudiced mind, a Greek was almost as bad as an Argentine or a Turk. The fact that Dr. Tanios had a charming manner and was said to be extremely able in his profession only prejudiced the only old lady slightly more against him. She distrusted charm and easy compliments. For this reason, too, she found it difficult to be fond of the two children. They had both taken after their father in looks. There was really nothing English about them. 
So poor Bella Tanios has made a rather brave marriage to a Greek man. Isn't it interesting, though, that Agatha Christie is now, rather than sharing in prejudice, criticising it openly? And she does that throughout the book, which is rather wonderful. Throughout the book, people are very prejudiced about the Greek husband, um, confusing him with a Turk, calling his children yellowish, using all sorts of really horrible words. And Agatha Christie stands outside of that. And as for Bella herself, quote... Bella Tanios, her hair inclined to straggle in wisps from below the fashionable hat that she wore at the wrong angle, stared at her cousin Teresa with a pathetic eagerness to assimilate and memorise her clothes. It was poor Bella's fate in life to be passionately fond of clothes, without having any clothes sense. Bella, when she arrived in England from Smyrna, had tried earnestly to copy Teresa's elegance at an inferior price and cut which is really savage and so, but so easy to see. I feel that the three cousins are so vividly painted in this book. I can absolutely believe them. And her motive is also money. Dr. Jacob Tanios, it's, uh, it's insinuated, has lost the money that she brought into the marriage. She's passionately devoted to her two children and she wants to ask Emily Arundel for money for school fees to send them to British private schools. So, you know... All three kids need money. Let's see who has committed murder to get it. We also have some rather funny side characters called the Trips, <laughs> who are these two ladies who live in the village and are spiritualists. Um, and they are, I mean, are they frauds? They seem rather well-meaning. And they are absolutely convinced that just before Emily Arundel died, that they saw a green halo coming out of her mouth, which they assume is her spirit or a warning from the other side. It's hilarious. Um, Emily Arundel tolerates them for her own amusement, but she did, clearly does not fall for their nonsense. Um, quotes, she did not care much for Julia and Isabel Tripp. She thought their clothes were ridiculous, their vegetarian and uncooked fruit meals absurd, and their manner affected. They were women of no traditions, no roots, in fact, no breeding. But she got a certain amount of amusement out of their earnestness, and she was at bottom kind-hearted enough not to grudge the pleasure that their friendship obviously gave to poor Minnie, which is rather damning. Um, but yeah, this is what um, Captain Hastings says of the Mrs. Trip, which is also really, really rude and damning. As far as I could make out, the Mrs. Trip were vegetarians, theosophists, British Israelites, Christian scientists, spiritualists and enthusiastic amateur photographers. As if all of those things were a sort of equivalently um, sort of, I don't know, unrespectable or silly. How you can put vegetarians and British, British Israelites which I guess means pro-Zionists, um, shows, I guess, the politics of the time. But yeah, very damning. But I do quite like the Miss Trips. Anyways, there are some clues to this murder. Um, there was the luminous halo around uh, Emily Arundel's head four nights before she died. Hercule Poirot um, finds a nail tacked into the skirting board at the top of the stairs and freshly varnished too. And he assumes that what has happened is that it was very well known that Bob the dog loved to play with a little ball and that sometimes he would leave the ball at the top of the stairs or at other places around the house and people would trip and fall over it. So has someone tried to um, engineer a trip and fall that might be blamed on poor Bob the dog? And indeed, Emily Arundel did have a nasty fall down the stairs. It was not fatal. It didn't kill her shortly before she died. So that's another clue. There's another clue, which is the letter that was posted long after she died. And we have the characters as evidence that I gave you. Um, so I'm going to pause there and get back to the sort of solution in the spoiler filled part of this, this episode.
But I have to say, I do like the characters in this book. I don't like the plotting. I don't like the technique of writing, but there's a lot of good stuff in here. In terms of whether the book is regressive or progressive and, and holds up, you know, to modern readers, there are some obvious things that have been changed. This is one of the rare books that has chapter titles. There is a chapter, chapter 18, which was originally called the N-word in the woodpile, which at the time would have been an idiomatic way of saying something that is hidden in kind of plain sight, maybe something unpleasant. Um, in the audiobook, that's been retitled A Cuckoo in the Nest. Um, in my new paperback version, it's called A Wolf in the Manger. But it is interesting that use of the N-word in idiomatic format, even in 1937, was seen as absolutely fine. The, the majority of the stuff that's really questionable in this book comes around the character of, of Dr. Tanios, who is treated really poorly on account of his race. People can't figure out if he's Greek, if he's Turkish, and they criticise his appearance, the appearance of his children. He's not really accepted in society. He tries to give Emily very good medical advice and she ignores it because she's so prejudiced, as Agatha Christie points out. And it is interesting that Agatha Christie, whenever she shows someone being horrible to him, is typically showing someone of that Victorian generation and looking down upon it. So... I'm not excusing it, actually, because it's still unpleasant to read. And we know that in novels of this time, Agatha Christie, in her own voice, is often quite prejudiced, particularly anti-Semitic, actually. And maybe that comment on British Israelites speaks to that. Um, But here, at least, she's using prejudice against Greeks and Turks as a marker of a Victorian and bigoted mindset, which is quite some progress for Mrs Christie and maybe for mainstream society at that time as you move through all you know, forward from the Victorian to the Edwardian era and now into the the Georgian era that they were living in in 1937. In terms of adaptations, um, there is a ITV version of this, uh, the David Suchet Hercule Poirot series, um, which I don't think is one of the more successful ones because they make a lot of minor changes and I'm not entirely sure why. So they set the whole thing in the Lake District. Charles Arundel becomes a racing car driver he needs money to race his cars, not entirely sure why. And they flatten out the characters. So Teresa Arundel, who's so fascinating and interesting as a portrait of a bright young thing, just becomes a rather flat, normal English middle class woman. Um, the trips are still there as kooks, but they're by far not as fun as they are in the book. It just all feels a little bit more flat, I would say. The, the, the murder itself does follow the plot of the book, so that's faithful. Um, They introduce a second murder, I'm not entirely sure why, which is slightly different. So yeah, I mean, you can watch it. I think it's it's probably even less successful than the novel, and the novel is only partially successful. Anyway, so that's it for my spoiler-free part of this discussion. I do think there are some fun characters, so if you're an Agatha Christie completionist and or you love dogs, do give this novel a try. Otherwise, I think it's safe to say it is second-tier Christie. Um, Tune in next time, however, for Death on the Nile, which is definitely first-rate Christie and really exotic and beautiful in its setting and lots of adaptations to discuss. Um, But whatever you're reading this weekend, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, folks, so we're back for a discussion of the solution to this novel. 
And the solution to this novel is that Bella Tanios has committed the murders because she wants to escape her husband. He's already frittered away her money. She passionately adores her children and she wants to raise them properly. What I find is hugely, hugely weak, not as weak as the resolution to murder in Mesopotamia, but not far off, is that anyone committing a murder would do so while wearing a dressing gown with a massive diamond brooch and then kneel by a skirting point, hammer in a nail in the middle of the night and then varnish it with a smell of varnish and assume no one's going to notice. I find that just utterly absurd and that really kills the novel for me. Anyway, that's all I really want to say about that. I think it's pretty poor. To me, there are lots of things I can forgive in an Agatha Christie, but a poor resolution, I really can't. Anyways, as I said, stay tuned next time for Death on the Nile, because it's such a great book. It's my absolute personal all-time favourite Christie. Can't wait to discuss it with you all. But until then, thank you for listening.